Welcome to the AJHP podcast series. The American Journal of Health System Pharmacy is the official journal of the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, an association of pharmacists committed to helping patients make the best use of medications. For more information about AJHP, please visit www.ajhp.org. This is William Zelmer, a contributing editor of the American Journal of Health System Pharmacy, speaking today with Dr. Matthew Morosky, who is one of seven authors of an AJHP paper entitled Advanced Practice Pharmacists, Practice Characteristics and Reimbursement of Pharmacists Certified for Collaborative Clinical Practice in New Mexico and North Carolina. Matt, thanks so much for agreeing to speak with me. I want to add for the benefit of our listeners that you are Associate Professor of Pharmacy Administration in the Department of Pharmacy Practice, College of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. Matt, why don't you start by just describing what the purpose of your survey was and in general what you found? I'd be glad to do that. I need to put it in context. There was a large percentage of the authors was a member of a group that was involved in trying to push the profession towards uh, improvement and advances in practice. We have kind of a silly name for ourselves. It came from Vince Colucci because he sent us a picture of a Montana street gang, which was a picture of four or five adult grizzlies walking down a downtown street. So we call ourselves the Grizzlies. We were really interested in a legislative initiative that came out of New Mexico where um, Heather Wilson, the representative there at the time, introduced a, another iteration of a bill that was called House Bill 5780 that would recognize pharmacists with advanced certification as mid-level providers under Medicare Part B and allow them to bill Medicare at 85% of the physician's rate for the services they could provide. Uh, at the time, we thought this was pretty exciting, and part of that was because some of the members of the group are in the two states that were doing this kind of certification at the time, North Carolina and New Mexico. Well, part of their discussion was, we've got people out there, and we've got people that are doing this kind of advanced practice. We need to know what they're doing. So the next step was to do what really constitutes a census instead of a survey, because we contacted every single person that fit this description in the country at the time to see if we could get a picture of what these front wave innovator pharmacists were doing with this opportunity. Can you describe, Matt, briefly what you found in your census? Well, one of the things I found is that I'm very proud of my profession, and in particular, I'm very proud of these people. They're doing some really interesting things. They're definitely pushing the envelope. One of the first things that comes to mind, I remember reading years ago about the very first people who earned their PharmDs. That was the early part of my generation. I remember that somebody did a study that found that they were different than most pharmacists and that they had a proclivity for pushing the envelope a little bit. They were, by nature, innovators, people who wanted to go a little farther. And I very much got that sense overall from the respondents uh, to our survey. But what I did find is that, in my research group, that these people are very active in a lot of different practice settings and a wide range of circumstances, some of whom are performing some really astonishingly high levels of clinical practice and others who are introducing it within a limited range of their practice, but in a number of different practice settings, both in the community and in institutions. 
perhaps the uh, most important take-home was that they seemed to enjoy a very positive relationship with the physicians with which they work and a good working relationship and a fair amount of respect uh, between the members of each profession and are well-liked and highly valued by their patients. That's the point that's probably the single most important thing here is that what they're doing is being well-received by the patients they serve. And that's an important message for us to take into consideration when we look at the viability of this kind of practice model. Well, that's sort of a a qualitative assessment of the work of these advanced practice pharmacists. What can you say in terms of quantitative results that you found? I guess I'm particularly interested, were these pharmacists engaged in advanced practice as a full-time activity or was it a part-time activity along with more traditional pharmacist responsibilities? What did you find in that regard? We asked them to fill out a lot of quantitative responses, and in fact, what I just suggested in terms of their relationship with their physicians and or patients were things that we didn't quantify in that sense. Now, obviously, we were quantifying the pharmacist's perceptions of the opinions of those around them. We didn't ask them. We couldn't contact the physicians or patients directly, but they consistently rated themselves in those levels quite high. In terms of their distribution of practice kinds, I cannot tell you that we have, you know, 92.4% doing this. We had a lot of variance in the kind of practice that they were involved in. To the extent that I would suggest that someone really wants to know the exact answer to those questions should probably read the paper because it gets kind of dense in terms of descriptors. I think what we're talking about right now is practice sites we found 32.8% of the respondents indicating that they had some involvement in community practice, 35.9% indicated institutional practice, and another 29.7% indicated their practice site fell somewhere outside of those traditional practice sites, including ambulatory care clinics, outpatient clinics, and government clinics. The picture that begins to emerge when you start looking at those numbers, and especially when you look at their individual comments, is that some of these pharmacists would conceivably being engaged in practice in a community pharmacy and might work at an institution at a clinic on another day of the week. That kind of rather flexible career or employment situation. They seem to be going to wherever they could find adequate reimbursement. Big challenge, actually. Yeah. Okay. Matt, could you take a moment and describe for our listeners how advanced practice pharmacists are defined in New Mexico and North Carolina? Because I think there's some differences between the two states, is there not? There's a slight difference, not a major one, but actually I I find your question a, a little amusing because advanced practice pharmacists was actually a term we made up because we had a problem of how should we shrink the size of our manuscript And although the pharmacy acts in North Carolina and New Mexico are quite similar in how they describe these pharmacists, they use slightly different terms to refer to them. New Mexico calls them a pharmacist clinician, and North Carolina calls them a clinical pharmacist practitioner. We didn't want to have to type that again and again and again as we went through the entire manuscript, so we came up with this term. to cut a few words out. The differences in requirements between the states, really, I think it comes down to one major difference. I think New Mexico came in through here first, and essentially, they're asking the practitioner to take uh, some additional training, primarily having to do with physical assessment and some diagnostics. Once they've met that training requirement, 
can allow them to register with the pharmacy board as a pharmacist clinician and then obtain a DEA number and then are eligible to apply for prescriptive authority working with a physician. North Carolina adds to that by requiring that the pharmacist also have to receive approval not only from the Board of Pharmacy, but also from the Board of Medicine. A very similar act is now in place, I would like to mention as well, in, in Montana. So we're beginning to see this. We did not survey the, the folks in Montana because that had happened after we'd actually done our data collection, but um, we're seeing propagation of the model. Matt, do you have any sense in terms of pharmacy students going through the current PharmD programs in New Mexico and North Carolina, to what extent their basic pharmacy education meets these requirements? I'm not familiar with the situation in North Carolina, but I do know that at one point it was set up in New Mexico that every student that was graduating from New Mexico's College of Pharmacy was meeting the regulatory requirements to apply for the status if they choose to do so. They were given the training in physical assessment and diagnostics as part of their education. So it was entirely an elective decision on their part post-graduation whether they would apply or not. Sure. Matt, um, I'd like to ask you a question sort of your opinion, your view about a matter based on your sense of involvement in studying this issue and thinking about it, being an advocate for this type of practice. What is your view about the wisdom of creating a special class of pharmacists in, let's say, all the states for advanced practice, as New Mexico and North Carolina have done, as a strategy for advancing the profession? Well, first of all, and I don't want to pick too big of a net with you, but I'm hesitant to think of it that way as the creation of a special class of pharmacists. Well, but the, think, the, two, the two states have done that, have they not? Well, it suggests that there's some sort of significant material difference. I don't think of it as a special class as much as I think of it as a special opportunity. And it's a small point, but it's an important this is not something that is restricted to any small number of pharmacists. I think we have plenty of evidence in our study that makes it clear that any pharmacist that decided they wanted to do this were capable of meeting the requirements. So it wasn't something that was restricted to only practitioners who had recently graduated or only practitioners who had previously earned a PharmD or only practitioners that were in their 30s or younger, there was a wide range of age. We had a substantial number of pharmacists that would earn, only earn a BS. Any one of those people was more than capable of making it into this program. So I see it more as an opportunity than I do a special class. May I rephrase my question? I, I see Certainly. your point. I think it's a matter of perhaps in part dealing with the stereotype of pharmacists perhaps uh, dealing with perception of public policymakers that, my gosh, I can't imagine my pharmacist engaging in prescribing. So it's a matter of credentialing pharmacists, recognizing those who have demonstrated they have competency for this level of practice. So my question is, should that be a part of the profession strategy for moving forward? Well, see, but now we're talking about something different. And that's why I'm more comfortable, because as a strategy, I think this approach is incredibly valuable because what it addresses is the, is the concern of potential payers and regulators to ensure quality control is in place. You don't want to risk 
allowing this to happen unless you have some confidence that the individuals who choose to take advantage of this special opportunity are, in fact, capable of carrying the load. And, you know, my co-author, Ernie Dole, says this a lot. Any sports team you look at has very specialized players that take care of different roles. Not everybody is a lineman. Not everybody is a wide receiver. Not everybody is a quarterback. We each have different skill sets and abilities that contribute to the overall goal of winning. And I think this is an opportunity for us to identify to uh, the decision makers in government and in the third-party industry who are individuals that are capable of providing this advanced kind of practice and meeting a need that is becoming substantially more evident every day of society for someone like these practitioners, someone who brings to the table an ability to work directly with a patient and a substantial knowledge of medications, their use, their side effects, and their adverse consequences. I think that's another message in this research, that there is a real demand for this kind of service. And I see our obligation as a profession that once we see evidence that that demand exists, that we have the capability of providing something that the members of our society need, that also suggests an obligation to meet that need. Mm -hmm. Matt, I guess I'm also curious about your view on the following point. If we're talking about our profession uh, increasingly moving toward having prescribing privileges, uh, the right to prescribe medications, do you think there should be any limitation on practice site for this pharmacist privilege? For example, uh, in your view, would it be appropriate for pharmacists practicing in the traditional community pharmacy to have that privilege, given the inherent conflicts there if you're prescribing and also dispensing? That sounds like a suggestion of a, a conflict of interest, the old physician's ability to induce demand for their own services kind of circumstance. Actually, I come out of a community pharmacy practice background, and, and I have yet to have met a community pharmacist that really said, oh boy, I've got more prescriptions to fill. That makes me happy, unless they were very, very desperate. That's just an aside. I think the model that we're seeing more and more in community practice, and I think that's really what this question comes down to, because I don't think anyone thinks about the idea of pharmacists prescribing in an institutional setting and saying, hmm, that's questionable. But the reality is that community practice already seems to be moving in a different direction. If you look at the business models for a lot of the major chains, they're doing centralized filling already. They're essentially doing preparation of the product at a different site with essentially a, a large automated filling system. And the pharmacist's role is more of a patient interaction one. They are spending a lot more time outside the lab with the patient. And I know of at least one chain that is, has mandated that their pharmacist leave the laboratory completely. What it reminds me of, it's starting to look like the old model for optometrists and opticians, that the patient interaction phase is where a pharmacist will be involved in talking with the patient about their medication consumption experience, providing advice, strategy, and when necessary, prescribing or altering dosage to meet the patient's changing needs, and then a technical group that is taking care of the preparation of the prescription. I'm not sure that we've reached that point yet, but it seems to be the direction we're evolving towards. And in that setting, I don't see the pharmacist's role 
being directly linked to the filling of prescriptions very much. And I, I don't think they have an inherent conflict going on there because their focus is going to be elsewhere. Now, whether or not that kind of issue might be apparent further up in the command and control structure of a corporation, that's a separate question. But years ago, I did have some familiarity with optometrists, and they to have separated themselves from that question rather well. So I, I know it can be done. I think that's part of the evolutionary process that's going on. I think we're trying a bunch of different things. But I don't see that as being an insurmountable barrier at this point. I also think that if we were to step away from that, we would take some real risks. The problems we're looking at is that there are an insufficient number of general practitioners out there right now and fewer coming up in the pipeline. At the same time that we have a swelling demand for treatment of chronic disease in the older patients and a larger number of older patients. We need to provide that care at a lower level of cost per patient. And the great advantage of this kind of practice model in the community is the high level of accessibility. Patients can get there. They can get the kind of treatment they need with a minimal investment in terms of setting up appointments or travel. It's more or less bringing the care to them and, and right in their neighborhood. Those are just the sort of things that you'll read continuously are necessary to help people make good lifestyle choices and help manage their own health. You know, an mm -hmm. ongoing, regular relationship with a caregiver. And I think we're very nicely positioned to do that as long as we don't allow our hesitancy to prevent us from moving in that direction. Matt? I guess I'm most familiar with the hospital health system practice environment, and the thing I see there is pharmacists in the inpatient setting just assuming, with the medical staff's blessing, uh, increased responsibilities for drug therapy management, even prescribing, and without necessarily having a law that says uh, your scope of practice encompasses this. How important do you think it is within state practice acts to explicitly recognize this as a part of the pharmacist's responsibility. I'm talking about drug therapy management, prescribing, however you might want to define it. Honestly, I think it's crucial. I think it's crucial because what you're talking about is essentially the creation of an internal economy. You'll have to forgive me, but I'm trained as an economist. The institutions essentially set up an internal economy where the pharmacists are rewarded because they are generating pseudo-revenue in terms of cost avoidance they're reducing billing from other sites. But until and unless those pharmacists are able to generate their own revenue stream, they run a real risk of not being able to maintain their practice in an institutional setting. We wrote an editorial to that effect some time ago and ask yourself, if you had two clinical pharmacy practice programs and one could document cost avoidance and improve patient outcomes, and the other one could do the same but could also demonstrate a sustained revenue stream, which one would be more likely to survive the next round of budget cuts? The answer to that question is obvious to everyone. The advantage that comes with this kind of legal permission, I guess is what you said, is that it bequeaths to pharmacists the ability to generate revenue, which allows us as a group to maintain our position within our institutions. But I think the other thing it does is it starts giving us some power. And it also creates for us 
a different status. We are very closely tied to drug therapy, and now it becomes our role as a provider of services and a generator of revenue. That's a different relationship that I think across all areas and levels of practice is more beneficial for the profession and the pharmacists that make it up. Some of these other arrangements might be beneficial to institutions or corporations, but that possibility for the individual pharmacist to be a generator of revenue is the most positive step I can see in terms of its impact on my profession. Matt, how do you square that view with what seems to be, at least in the minds of many health policymakers, a pressure, maybe even a trend to move away from fee-for-service payment for healthcare services? I hear what you're saying. You're saying fee-for-service may be dead. And that's fine. I think if pharmacists provide these kind of services under a capitation arrangement, that would be wonderful. In fact, that might better fit into a lot of the aspects of our model of practice. The key is not how we are paid, but that we are paid. Mm -hmm. And we are paid for the services we provide, not the product we dispense. The problems we're facing right now aren't really, to my way of thinking, tied to you know, whether or not it's a fee-for-service arrangement or whether it's population health management. I mean, if that's what I think of when I get away from fee-for-service, that you're agreeing to provide management of the health of a population. Mm -hmm. I, I think in some ways that model is especially relevant to community practice. Um, so I, I think there's lots of potential there. The problem I have, and, and now I'm going to get up on my soapbox, is that right now with the current reform that's going on, we're not even in the game. Healthcare reform right now, as it's written, is focusing on accountable care organizations. And I just saw an editorial in Pharmacy Therapeutics that Stephen Barless that wrote it, but basically makes the case that ACOs are rewarded for saving money. They make money by providing care, and it's kind of a capitation arrangement. It's not fee-for-service, but how rich the reward is is linked to how much money they save at the same time. But the way the system is set up, it only recognizes those occupational groups within the ACO who are currently reimbursed under Medicare Part B. So although we are awash in studies that can demonstrate that pharmacists are capable of generating uh, cost savings, because they can't bill, they're not part of the ACO equation. If that's the way that governmental reform of healthcare is headed, we have to get that reimbursement ability to be in the game at all. That's why it's crucial. I don't care how they do it. I don't care how they pay pharmacists, whether it's fee-for-service or some other mechanism, but that they can bill at some level and in some way is crucial to us being able to demonstrate the positive impact we can have. But it sounds as though you're making an important distinction, a distinction that's important to you, in terms of a pharmacist billing for service versus being paid a salary for service. Is that correct? I think we're getting tied up in the semantics here. And I tend to think about these things looking at very specific meanings. You can bill for services and you're not paid necessarily on a fee-for-service status. You can bill under capitation. You know, I'm going to provide services to the however many thousands of members per month are going to come into my clinic. 
but I'm signing a contract with you that I will receive reimbursement uh, based on a fee of 75 cents per member per month for that clinic membership. And for that reimbursement, I will provide care. That mm -hmm. would be a, a capitation arrangement. But the thing is, I'm billing you for that. Now, it's not fee for service, but I'm billing you for it. And that's not a salary either because I'm generating that revenue for my institution. See, that's, that's the key. If you want to see a pharmacist or a pharmacy program be healthy within an institution, let's keep it within the hospital. It's going to be more advantageous for that program if it's able to bill for revenue from outside providers, as opposed to counting on this internal economy to generate some sort of status within the institution. If you're bringing in outside money from outside payers, because of the bills that you've written, whether it be fee-for-service or capitation, you're going to be much healthier. You're going to have a much higher standing with the financial officers of the institution. You're much more likely to be in a position to demonstrate the benefits your program brings to the institution, both in terms of, of revenue and cost avoidance. So it's the ability to bill somebody else for your services. That's the crucial point. How you bill it is immaterial, whether it be fee-for-service, capitation, or some other arrangement. But it's got to have the pharmacist name on that claim. Does that clarify for you? Well, I, I certainly understand your view. I think it could be the subject, perhaps, of uh, for an even lengthier interview and perhaps somewhat of a debate about some of these points, but time doesn't permit. Let me ask you, Matt, in terms of the study that you've uh, reported here in AJHP, what do you take away as the overall message for pharmacy in this report? I think the overall message is that we have a relatively small group of people who have demonstrated the feasibility of this practice model. They've accomplished some truly astonishing things, especially considering that none of them have established billing privileges with a third-party payer. But they've found ways to make it work, and they have shown that providing this kind of care is something that their patients perceive as being helpful and needful, and in the process, at least based on the perceptions of our respondents, they have been able to materially improve the quality of life of their patients and their patients' health outcomes. My message to pharmacy in that study then is that knowing that this kind of practice helps our patients do better creates for us an obligation to move forward, not perhaps in this precise direction, but certainly in this general direction and that we need to do whatever is necessary to work together, to be willing to accept some risk, and to do whatever is necessary to generate adequate recognition of our value as a profession in a very real and material way to allow us to, again, as I said before, get in the game. Well, thank you, Matt. That's an excellent concluding comment, and my congratulations to you on your paper in the December 15th AJHP on Advanced Practice Pharmacists, Practice Characteristics and Reimbursement of Pharmacists Certified for Collaborative Clinical Practice in New Mexico and North Carolina. This is William Zelmer, AJHP Contributing Editor, speaking with Matthew Murawski, who is Associate Professor of Pharmacy Administration at the College of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at Purdue University. That concludes this podcast. 
For more information, please visit www.ajhp.org.